might be a little bit. Let me turn the fans on. Okay. Okay. Hey, Ken, do you want to give an update during service? Okay, thank you.
Good morning, everyone. Beautiful day. Mothers, happy Mother's Day to all of you. Let's go over a couple of announcements. Uh, we can skip down to number six. No evening service once again tonight. Resume our studies next week on the 21st. Uh, a note here that was given to me. Mothers, there is a gift for you that will be handed out to you after the sermon. Any mother, not just members of the church. And that is courtesy of Rachel, who made these gifts. So please enjoy them. I have... Uh, Port Ken, how is Della? Well, she went in and had two arteries cleaned out. Oh. Which made a, a real big difference. It, it seems like uh, if your heart works pretty good, then the rest of your body seems to work better. And he went in and opened up two of them. I gotta ask the big question. Is she getting any better sleep? Pardon? Is she sleeping better? She has a good night and a bad night. Okay, well that's something at least. And uh, well we're working on that. Well she's been to the sleep doctor and he's trying to try different things. She's on a CPAP machine with oxygen to try to help her sleep. And we're working on that part too. But, but uh, she does feel better. Excellent. That's an answer to prayer in itself. I just, I don't know if you know how bad it hurts or not to be here in church for so long. She, sure. It, Exactly, yeah. We're working on that. Well, the doctor should be able to prescribe that, right? Mm -hmm. There should be no cost to you. Yeah, and, uh, but things are working better. And that's the prayer. Thank you. Thank you for that. Jerry, how is your lovely husband doing? And I understand he's home now. Sure. 
keep him in prayers as well. And how are you feeling? You feeling okay? Tell him for us that we are thinking about him. He is in our prayers, if you would. Uh, if you noticed, uh, George and Sheila are not here tonight. I've gotten word that Sheila fell this morning. Oh. No, not this morning. Was it last night? I think it was yesterday. Sometime yesterday? this weekend. Oh, and she's pretty, pretty stiff and sore, so she's not up for driving right now. So George is uh, left to his devices as far as trying to hear the, the service. So let's keep uh, both he and Sheila in our prayers for the foreseeable future. I have a uh, an update I'd like to give all of you and uh, that we're at prayer Wednesday night. There is a, an acquaintance of mine. Her name is Gwendolyn. Her two granddaughters are preemies, 29 weeks. I want to give you a little update on what's going on. Um, to preface this, the doctors both advised the mother because of the situation when she was pregnant to terminate the pregnancies because they said that uh, their quality of life would be virtually zero. They could probably not survive the childbirth. And they gave her a myriad of reasons not to have these daughters. And mother being a Christian and faithful to the Lord said, I will have the children and it will be in God's hands. So both girls are a little over two pounds at this point. And uh, the eldest girl is Adelie. She's having difficulty gaining weight. And she is, uh, has a, what's called a tethered spinal cord. I guess that's a prelude to spinal bifida. Am I correct, Dan, in saying that? Okay. And Aubrielle is a younger of the two, and she has MRSA. So that's another, another real whammy to them. Uh, they're having difficulty regulating their body temp. Uh, red blood uh, cell count is fairly critical. Both of them are on breathing machines. They're both in the NICU unit. And mom has to s spend her time. She can't be with both children at once because the one girl has the MRSA and it's considered highly contagious. So one of the advantages she has right now with the, with the girls is she's allowed to stay at the Ronald McDonald House. And it's down in uh, Children's Hospital. Where did I say it? Grand Rapids. It's a very good hospital. Father uh, is uh, still up in Cadillac through the week. The company has allowed him to work four 10-hour days and then commute down and spend the weekend. With his, uh, uh, if they get to a certain point in their weight, they'll be released from the NICU unit, and then after a period of time, we'll 
be allowed to come home. And then they're going to be talking some various surgeries. So, and for Aubriel, I would ask for Gwendolyn that uh, you uh, pray in earnest for these. whose name is Cindy, father whose name is Josh, that their commitment to Christ uh, is reinforced by your commitment to prayer. So I'll do that. Father in heaven, as we come before you this morning, we are humbled by your majesty and your glory. We are so grateful to be called your children that you've grafted us into your your tree, your family tree, oh Lord. And we ask you as our Father that your grace would be sufficient for the mother, Cindy, and the father, Josh, and for these two wonderful little daughters that they have chosen to bring into the world that your care and your love and your mercy would be upon them, that your providence would, would show brightly to the doctors who were skeptical and perhaps may even hold you in contempt. Be with these little girls, Lord. Be with the family. Be with the entire family, Lord. Commit our hearts to this. Watch over us in this hour. Be with us. Have your Holy Spirit commune with us, and we will give you the honor and the glory in all things. In the name of Christ we ask, amen. Do we have any other comments, prayer requests, or anything? If not, uh, our scripture for meditation is taken from the book of Psalms, Psalm 19, and that will be page 858 in your pew Bible.
kindly stand with us as we begin our service with an opening prayer. And if I may, I'd like to ask a volunteer from one of the men in the congregation. Do I have a volunteer? Dale, thank you. Will you take your red hymnal this morning and turn to number 243, 243 in the Trinity.
had the mother's head and she had the mother's head. Oh, come on, it's your turn. Oh, oh, yes, Janelle. God will take care of you. All right, do you know where it is in here? In the back. All right, we'll find it. God will take care of you. Number 47, in the brown. Number 47. Is it a favorite of yours? Okay. Absolutely. All right, 47 in the brown. <coughs> Thank you. Thank you. 
Our scripture reading for this morning is taken from the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 4, verses 1 through 22, and that will be page 424 in your pew Bible. When you come to that, please stand with us. First Samuel 4, verses 1 through 22. <clears throat> and Samuel's word came to all Israel. Now the Israelites went out to fight against the Philistines. The Israelites camped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines at Aphek. The Philistines deployed their forces to meet Israel. And as the battle spread, Israel was defeated by the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 of them on the battlefield. When the soldiers returned to camp, the elders of Israel asked, Why did the Lord bring defeat upon us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the ark of the Lord's covenant from Shiloh, and it may go with us and save us from the hand of our enemies. <coughs> So the people sent men to Shiloh, and they brought back the Ark of the Covenant on the Lord Almighty, who was enthroned between the cherubim. And Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. When the Ark of the Lord's Covenant came into the camp, all Israel raised such a great shout that the ground shook. Hearing the uproar, the Philistines asked, What's all this shouting in the Hebrew camp? When they learned that the ark of the Lord had come into the camp, the Philistines were afraid. A God has come into the camp, they said. We're in trouble. Nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us! Who will deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods? They are the gods who struck the Egyptians with all kinds of plagues in the desert. Be strong, Philistines, be men, or you will be subject to the Hebrews. They have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought, and the Israelites were defeated, and every man fled to his tent. The slaughter was very great. Israel lost 30,000 foot soldiers. The ark of God was captured, and Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, died. <clears throat> that same day, the Benjamite ran from the battle line and went to Shiloh, his clothes torn and dust on his head. When he arrived, there was Eli sitting on his chair by the side of the road, watching because his heart feared for the ark of God. When the men entered the town, told what had happened, the whole town sent up a cry. Eli heard the outcry and asked, what is the meaning of this uproar? The man hurried over to Eli, who was 98 years old and whose eyes were set so that he could not see. He told Eli, I have just come from the battle line. I fled from it this very day. Eli asked, What happened, my son? 
The man who brought the news replied, Israel fled before the Philistines. And the army has suffered heavy losses. Also, your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead. And the ark of God has been captured. When he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell backward off his chair by the side of the gate. His neck was broken, and he died. For he was an old man and heavy. He had led Israel 40 years. His daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant. And near the time of delivery, when she heard the news that the ark of God had been captured and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she went into labor and gave birth, but was overcome by her labor pains. As she was dying, the woman attending her said, Don't despair. You have given birth to a son. But she did not respond or pay any attention. She named the boy Ichabod, saying the glory has departed from Israel. Because of the capture of the ark of God and the deaths of her father-in-law and her husband, she said, the glory has departed from Israel. For the ark of God has been captured. Father in heaven, as we dwell upon this passage, Lord, we pray your mercy upon us and your blessing as well. We will take this and glean from it your love for us. In the name of Christ, amen. You take your red hymnal again and turn to number 254. 254.
Our text this morning is 1 Samuel chapter 4. In our last study, we learned that our God keeps his promises to his people. He is worthy of our trust. He will not let us down. He's not a liar like men. He never changes, not even to change his mind. That would imply that he didn't know his mind. That's not God. Balaam, a false prophet, was hired by the Moabite king, Balak, to curse Israel. And the plan was to impede Israel's ability to fight with courage and vigor and in the power of God. Well, that was the plan. But it all backfired. Whenever... Balaam opened his mouth to curse Israel. He pronounced a blessing instead. His sorcery, his occult magic, failed him every time, for God was supportive of his people. Though a liar at heart, God compelled him to proclaim the truth every time. That God is not a man that he should lie, that he should change his mind. Does he speak and not act? Does he promise and then not fulfill? Numbers 23, verse 19 and following. And we learn from the by faith chapter of the Bible, Hebrews 11, that God's people of old took him at his word and they patterned their lives and their actions on God's promises and God rewarded them greatly for their living faith we learn that faith pleases God doubt angers God and if we do not pray believing James warns us that we will receive nothing nothing we must pray in faith So let us do that very thing as we come to today's study. Let's ask the Lord for his blessing. Lord, we just praise you and thank you for the opportunity to look again into your word. And then seeing the principles of how you acted with your people Israel. We are your people in the new covenant. And so we can learn how you're going to react to the various situations that we face in our day by looking at how you dealt with Israel and helped them in their day. And we can trust that because the scripture says God does not change. He's the same yesterday, today, forever. What God is like that among the pagans? They're always fickle. They're always changing because there are no gods at all. But our God, the creator of the universe, does what he says. And whatever he says comes to fruition. Pray that you will bless us and help us in our study today. In Christ's name, amen. I took my inspiration for this sermon today from the men's prayer meeting on Wednesday evening. 
of the men were praying for revival and renewal in our lives as Christians. So I thought it might be appropriate to see from the scriptures why it is that God's glory sometimes departs from his people as we search for the answer to the question how may we see the glory of God return when faith has failed that there is in our country all across our land a great spiritual declension in social uh, local churches including us does not come as a great surprise to most I mean it can be found in the north it can be found in the south it can be found in the Bible Belt we find it in rural communities such as our own in the more metropolitan areas like Detroit There seems to be no difference whether the church is blessed with an abundance of spiritually gifted leaders and so forth, 1 Corinthians 12, or whether it is meagerly equipped. Rich churches, poor churches, knowledgeable churches, uneducated churches, sophisticated churches, rudimentary churches, white-collar, blue-collar Arminian in theology, Calvinistic in theology. The spiritual decline cannot be attributed to any one of these factors, nor to a combination of them all. For in each and every kind of church described, if not in every church directly, there is a definite spiritual lethargy and sluggishness which is nigh to becoming the norm rather than the exception. I mean, in some cases, it is almost as though God has abandoned his people. It is as if Eli's grandson's name has become a reality for us as well as Israel. Ichabod, the glory of God, has departed. This is a dark and gloomy perspective at best and downright horrifying at worst. But lamenting what is cannot correct it. And settling for what is is not Christian living at all. Everywhere in this great country of ours we see Christian churches staggering under the weight of over-busyness, spiritual depression, apathy, and indifference. Some believers are just plain worn out trying to maintain their schedules and their Christian testimony in a hostile world. That's where they're at. We are attacked regularly by the news media. We are ridiculed in TV programs. Comedians make fun of religious leaders. They ridicule the teachings of the Bible. Artists portray Christ in blasphemous poses as a homosexual or as an adulterer. Indeed, nothing is sacred today. 
nothing. And all of this takes its toll on us as God's people. We may feel that our faith has been in vain. That God has abandoned us. And is forced to deny us. So I ask, then, is there no remedy for our benighted souls? Must we content ourselves with kind of uh, muddling through week after week, gleaning a ray of hope here and another one over there in shallow successes? Are we to live our spiritual lives hand to mouth, grabbing a morsel of spiritual nourishment here and there while we're on the run? Well, is this the best we can expect? Is that what we we should expect for ourselves and for our church? If so, then we will not make it. For Jesus taught, if a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. Nothing. John 15, verse 5. You in Christ, Christ in you, equals much fruit. That's a blessed combination. But ah, if, uh, if Ichabod is the case, If the glory of God has departed and we're left to ourselves to struggle through the best we can, our best will not be good enough to keep ourselves spiritually alive. Faith is fruitless without God as its object. I hear this all the time from people. Well, just have faith. I know you're going through some rough time now, but just have some faith. They don't say what in, in what. They, they talk about faith as though whatever you believe in is okay as long as you practice that belief. This being the case, we want to discover today how the departure of God's glory comes to be in so many churches and how we may have God's glory return. 1 Samuel 4 talks of this, the day of God's glory departing. The first thing we observe is that all is not well with Israel in this day due to misplaced loyalties. The Philistines were nothing new as a threat to Israel. As far back as Abraham in the book of Genesis, this nation was found to be one which persecuted the people of God. You can read about it in Genesis 26, the chapter. God's people have always had enemies to face. Spiritual enemies which are out to ruin our souls. 
Later David would have to stand against Goliath with a sling and a stone and a prayer to God. Yet we all know that he was wonderfully victorious. So the problem then is not that Israel had the Philistines for enemies. No, the problem was that Israel in this period of its history, unlike David to come, was being whipped by their enemies. Verse 2, 4,000 Israelites were slain in one battle. And verse 10, 30,000 in the next battle. Think of that. So this morning, if you sense something of a spiritual poverty in your soul, and you think, well, God has departed from me, that Ichabod in your life has nothing to do with the fact that you are facing spiritual enemies. The scriptures make it clear that the godly will suffer persecution. That's just it. Listen to Jesus. Matthew 5. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Matthew 5, verse 10. Wow. He went on to tell his disciples, if you belong to the world... It would love you as its own. It would. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. This is why the world hates you. That's John 15, verse 19. Wow, we live in a world that hates us. Oh, and they do something with that hatred. The Apostle Paul chimes in, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be, here it is, persecuted. Wow. 2 Timothy 3.12 Hated by the world, persecuted by the world. They hate us, they do something about it. That's a horrible environment in which to live. An environment where people hate you and where they will persecute you because of that hatred. So you see, rather than a sign of God's abandonment, the enemies you face may very well be proof that you're striving to live a godly life. It's the godly who are persecuted, brethren, not those who are worldly, not those who are carnal. It's the spiritual who sense the animosity and the hatred of the world. If you're one with the world, the world will leave you alone. They will. 
But when you live the separated life, called out and distinct as a disciple of Jesus Christ, therein will the battle lines be drawn. And sometimes the enemies you will have to face will be those of your own family. That's kind of shocking to hear, isn't it? Well, wait a minute, Pastor. My own family? They're going to hate me? They're going to persecute me? Well, we normally associate love with families, don't we? If ever we thought we had people who loved us, understood us, were supportive of us, we would list our families first among those. Yet we have forgotten, or worse, we have disbelieved God's word on this matter. Jesus taught, Brother will betray brother to death, a father his child, children will rebel against parents and have them put to death, and all men will hate you because of me, for I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, a man's enemies will be members of his own household. Matthew 10, 21 and 12. Wow. That, that's a hard pill to swallow. A very hard pill to swallow. When I was at Moody Bible Institute, one of my dorm friends, the young man, was there at Moody. And he told me, I, I said, well, what, what, what brought you to Moody? I was there, you know, with the blessings of my parents. They were helping to pay my school bill for me and had me go there. Not so with this young man. This man says, I'm here under duress. My parents disowned me because I was coming to Moody. I can't believe it. I just shook my head. I said, then how did you get here? Well, some people in the church came together and they raised the funds for me so I could come. And he says, and furthermore, I'm not welcome home. So at Christmas vacation and other vacations were the school recesses we took this man home with us. We are not allowed to just sit there in an empty dorm. A man's enemies will be members of his own household. 
We listen to that warning and we protest. Oh, no, wait a minute. Not my mother. Surely she will not desert me because of my stand with Christ. Uh, not, not my only brother. I know he will support me. But those we love in filial ties do desert us and they do forsake us when we need their understanding. They despise us for our faith. And we are at a loss as to what to say or what to do. And if that were not bad enough, Christ makes it clear that if push comes to shove, we must make a choice of loyalties. Oh boy. Here's his words. Anyone who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Matthew 10, verse 37 and following. There's life in this world, and then there is life on the higher plane. There's simply existing, and then there is life more abundant that the scripture talks about. And all of this is germane to what we are studying about the glory of God departing from his people. The Philistines had come against Israel, and Israel senses the truth. Why did the Lord bring defeat upon us today before the Philistines? Verse 3. That's a very good question. Why indeed? Eli was priest and judge in Israel. His two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, served as priests with him. Yet 1 Samuel 2 verse 12 says of Eli's sons that they were, I'm reading scripture, wicked men. Ooh. Wicked men. Literally, sons of Belial. Sons of the devil. Belial's one of the names in the Bible for him. Why this um, infamous title? Well, it is because Hophni and Phinehas pilfered for themselves the best of the offerings which the people brought to sacrifice to God. That is to say, they took the best offerings for themselves and God viewed this as, and I'm reading scripture, treating the Lord's offering with contempt. Numbers 2, verse 17. 
Verse 12 says, they had no regard for the Lord. Their praise. No regard for the Lord. They did more. Verse 22 says, they slept with the women who served at the entrance of the tent of meeting, the worship center. So, these young men were profane and godless in their lifestyle. They were lecherous predators. They thumbed their nose at the worship of God, which they were responsible to emulate before the people. They were immoral fornicators, like the fool of Proverbs chapter 7, and all Israel knew it. Oh, wow, someone else knew it too. Dad knew it. However, when it came to making that all-important choice between God and his sons, Eli chose to defend his sons and God said to Eli you honor your sons above me chapter 2 verse 29 oh, oh, oh now now we are beginning to understand something of why God's glory has departed from Israel why it is that the Philistines, the avowed enemies of God, are now suddenly victorious over God's people. We now begin to see one of the reasons that Ichabod is a reality. The reason is misplaced loyalties preferring sinful family over the Lord. Well, you know, they're my kids. Eli put his sons above the Lord. He loved his sons more than Christ. His enemies were the members of his own household. And he, by capitulating to their sin, instead of standing as the priest that he was, had now jeopardized his own priestly line and had compromised Israel's safety. By the way, he lost his priestly line. God took him out. And Samuel, who wrote the books in the Bible, 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel, became the new priest and the new line for the religious leaders in Israel. You know, brethren, sometimes the enemies we face are family members. Hate to say that. But the enemy itself, the enemy itself, is not the reason God's glory departs. His glory departs when we capitulate, that is, when we give in to that manipulative mother who runs us ragged with 
frivolous errands so that there is a strain on our relationship with our spouse or when we knuckle under to a father who always wants to take the boys fishing or hunting or some such thing on what day? Sunday. So they can't go to church. And God's glory goes when we prefer them above Christ and His Word. Again, sometimes our enemies are members of our own church family. Oh no. Our own church family. The people of God. David could say, even my close friend whom I trusted He who shared my bread has lifted up his heel against me. Psalm 41, verse 9. And he is referring to Ahithophel, David's general, who sided with Absalom in the rebellion when Absalom tried to kick his dad out of the kingdom and fomented an uprise. Say, well, what's your point? The point is that sometimes it isn't the world at all who opposes us. But those who profess to know and love the same Lord that we do. And herein lies their opposition. David says, My enemies say of me in malice, When will he die? and his name perish. When's that going to happen? Whenever one comes to see me, says David, he speaks falsely, and his heart gathers slander, that is, false stories. That's what slander is. His heart gathers slander, and then he goes out, and he spreads it abroad. Psalm 41, verse 5 and 6. He propagates his own wicked fiction about David. One of the most godly kings Israel ever produced. And I remind you that among Jesus' chosen twelve, there was a devil. John 6, verse 70. This son of perdition was none other than Judas, who sold Jesus to the authorities for silver and led the soldiers to the garden site where Jesus was arrested and led away. He was numbered with the twelve brethren. He lived and acted the part of a disciple, so much so that none of his fellow disciples suspected his treachery. When he showed up with the soldiers, none of them said, oh yeah, that's Judas. We suspected he was going to do something like this. No. They were utterly shocked. Some of your enemies may be those who walk with you. They eat the same spiritual manna from the table. 
which is set for you at this pulpit. They teach your kids in Sunday school. They pray alongside of you in prayer meeting. They bring you chicken soup when you're having the flu. They watch your kids when you need to go to the dentist for an appointment. Yet for all of that, they may not be walking close to the Lord at all. In reality, they may present bad examples for you to imitate as did Eli's sons. Now note, this is not why the glory of God departs. Think of it. If Christ had his Judas and he still remained faithful in the blessing of his father, so can you. No, Ichabod does not become a reality because of enemies. We all have enemies. It becomes a reality because of misplaced loyalties. Hophni and Phineas is another group. Blood sons of Eli. But they were also priests in service of God in the temple arena. Is it any wonder that the glory of the Lord departs? I want to say that David did not fall apart spiritually because all of a sudden the ones he loved the ones who supported him now hate him and sought his overthrow. You say, well, he was betrayed. Yes, he was betrayed by his own general, by his own son. Here's what he said, however, concerning all that happened to him. He's praying to God. I know. I know that you are pleased with me. For my enemy does not triumph over me. In my integrity, you uphold me. He took that to heart. How does a person or a church know that they are living right? By their conformity to the Word of God. And by the continual manifestations of the graces of the Holy Spirit in their words and in their behavior. What you say and what you do tell on you. And they tell on your friends too. If your heart is good and right, righteous and godly fruit will show up on your tree. But if your heart is bad, rotten, deformed fruit will show up on your tree. 
Matthew 7, 17 and following. Which means you may have to choose between your friends and the return of God's glory. So the first problem in this business of Ichabod becoming the description of your life is misplaced loyalty. Second problem. Misplaced love and faith. That is to say, a defective worship of God. When Israel was defeated in the first battle against the Philistines, they lost, we read it, 4,000 men, verse 2. In the second battle, they lost 30,000. Oh, wow. Verse 10. So, 34,000 troops lost as they went in battle against the Philistines. After the first battle, they acknowledged. Why did the Lord bring defeat upon us today before the Philistines? Verse 3. It's kind of like they're saying, Lord, are we the people of God or not? Are you on our side or what? In other words, the people realized that their defeat in battle had nothing to do with the superior forces of the Philistines or that the enemy had a better strategy or more astute military leaders or braver soldiers no, that's not where they go, trying to understand why Ichabod is part of our experience. They say, the Lord brought defeat upon us. That was their conclusion. Oh, God is not for us. Worse. God is against us. They had forsaken God. Oh, he had forsaken them. Don't think they counted on that one. And so between battle number one and battle number two, the Israelites did something which they believed would benefit their cause. Verse 3. Let us bring the Ark of the Lord's Covenant from Shiloh so that it may go with us and save us from the hand of our enemies. First Samuel 4 3. Ooh, 
bad counsel, bad decision. Notice the mentality here. The Ark of God was a piece of furniture in the tabernacle. This was the place where God was purported to dwell in Israel. Between the cherubim on the mercy seat, the lid of this gold-covered box. A cherubim, an angel here, and an angel over here, on top, carved on top of this gold-covered box. But the mentality expressed by the people on this occasion was not so much one of confidence in God, but confidence in the sacred artifact, the ark, or the box itself. They seem to be saying this. We were defeated by the Philistines because we didn't have the sacred ark with us. So if we carry the ark of the covenant into our next battle, I'm reading scripture now, it may go with us and save us from our enemies. Verse 3. Can you believe this? The ark will save us? Brethren, this is a fetish view of God's protection. It parallels the unbeliever's concept of carrying a lucky rabbit foot or a St. Christopher medal. And it was something which the pagan Philistines could relate to because of their idolatry. Verse 7, they say of Israel, Ooh, a God has come into their camp. We're in trouble. How so? Because Israel had carried the ark into camp, much like any pagan nation would carry its idols into battle. Israel was indeed acting like pagans in this procedure. Israel thought that the gold box carried into battle would become their savior. But what happened? They lost 30,000 souls. 30,000 souls. That's more than four times their loss in the first battle. And the Philistines captured the ark. Verse 10, verse 11. Oh no. Why? I mean, how could this happen? Because Israel had a misplaced love and defective faith in God. They had a pagan concept of God. That God somehow lived in a gold-covered box which they could transport on men's shoulders from one place to another at will. We'll just carry our God with us. And he'll come to our aid. Am I misreading this?
chapter 7 of First Samuel, two pages over. They sent messengers to the people of Kiriagim, saying, The Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord, because they captured it. Come down and take it up in your place. So the men of Kiriagim came and took the ark of the Lord. They took it to Abinadab's house on the hill and and consecrated Eleazar, his son, to guard the ark of the Lord. I'm reading on. It was a long time, 20 years in all, that the ark remained at Kiriath Jerem. And all the people of Israel mourned, and they sought after the Lord. Oh. And Samuel said to the whole house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all of your heart, then rid yourselves of the foreign gods and the Asherah and commit yourselves to the Lord and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the Israelites put away their Baals and their Asherahs, and they served the Lord. The Israelites were acting like pagans. They thought that the gold-covered box carried into battle would become their savior. But it turned out that the box was captured and they lost 30,000 soldiers. Their love was misplaced. Their faith was misplaced. They had a pagan concept of God. That God somehow lived in a gold-covered box which they could transport on men's shoulders from one place to another. Am I misreading this? Am I speculating on their idolatry? No, we read it. Chapter 7. So the men of Kiriath Jerem came and took the ark of the Lord, and they took it to Abinadab's house on the hill and consecrated Eleazar, his son, to guard the ark. And it was a long time, 20 years in all, that the ark remained at Kiriath Jerem, and all the people of Israel mourned and sought after the Lord. And Samuel said to the whole house of Israel, If you're returning to the Lord with all of your heart, what are they to do? Rid yourselves of the foreign gods and the Ashtoreths and commit yourselves to the Lord and serve Him only and He will deliver you from the hand of the Philistines. Israelites worshiping idols. They're the only nation that knew the one true God but they're worshiping the same pagan idols of the nations. Yeah, the ark was in their possession. And then it was captured by the Philistines. 
And they took the ark and had it for seven months. Chapter 6, verse 1. But they had nothing but trouble all of the time that they had the ark. So what, what did the Philistines do? They sent it back. That was their decision. Boy, we've had nothing but trouble since this box has been with us. Let's just send it back. So they did. And the ark got as far as Kiriath Jerem. And there it remained for, I can't believe it, 20 years. During which time Israel, we are told, sought after the Lord. Yeah, the ark was back in their possession, but God wasn't. God wasn't. Why not? The people had a misplaced love and worship of God. They had a plurality of gods like the people about them. Foreign gods, we are told, verse 3, the Ashereth poles, the Baals, Ichabod was still their portion, sacred box or not. God's glory was not there. When the glory of God departs, brethren, it is due to misplaced loyalties. That is to say, God is not first over the other things of life. Family, friends, vocations, there's no misplaced faith and a misplaced worship of God. The God whom we serve becomes our own self-created idol that is there to be carried about like a fetish or a good luck charm. So let me ask, what is your concept of God today? Is he someone you run to only in times of trouble? Well, then you are a user of God. When you come to worship, have you come to meet with God through his word? Or do you come for fear that if you don't make the showing, God's going to get you for it? If that's true, then you're ruled by fear and not love. The ark contained the law, the rod of Aaron, and the manna that Israel ate when they were expelled from Egypt. Okay, but is the word of God written on your heart? Is the rod of God's power and the rod of discipline a part of your daily routine or only a Sunday thing? Do you feed upon the bread of life, Jesus Christ, who alone brings God's glory to us? It's not beyond the people of God to develop a pagan conception of God and His Word, to place a Bible on the coffee table so to ward off evil trouble in the home, to worship God in body but not in spirit, to be divided in loyalties between many gods, to reserve God for Sunday, and then in a cold and calculating way, well, i got to go do my duty. When Israel did this, God's people are no, God's glory just departed from them. 
they were left to themselves with their tent of meeting and God absent from their midst. And for 20 years after the return of their sacred box, we are told they sought after the Lord, but he was nowhere to be found. So I asked the question, when will the day of God's glory return? Number one, when, repent, when we repent by reestablishing our priorities down biblical lines. We like to talk about being followers of the Bible, but talk is cheap. And talk by itself is not saving faith in action. James says, What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith. There's that talk again. But he has no deeds. Oh. Actions? You're looking for something more than talk? He goes on. Can such faith save him? And he answers his own question. I'm glad he did. He says, faith without deeds is useless useless it's a big zero James 2.14 in Israel Eli's faith in God was compromised by his preference of his sons over the Lord Israel did the same thing as the nation in preferring the idols of the pagans over God What God said about money also applies to other things which men treasure. No one can serve two masters, said Jesus. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one, despise the other. Matthew 6, verse 24. You see, there has to be a priority. Your, your life has to be arranged. There has to be a first and then a second and then a third, etc. Everything cannot be first. And no true Christian should ever be in doubt as to who or what is to come first in our lives. It isn't family. It isn't another believer in the church. It isn't a spouse. It isn't our own personal sense of well-being. It isn't religion. It is God. Jesus says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. Matthew 22, verse 37. Is this true of you this morning? If not, then you need search no further as to why the glory of God has departed from you. Secondly, the glory of God returns when we return to our first love and to a right worship of the Lord alone. Samuel's counsel to Israel was this. If you are returning to the Lord, 
with all your heart, then, here it is, rid yourselves of the foreign gods. Commit yourself to the Lord, not to the ark. Serve him only, and he will deliver you. 1 Samuel 7, verse 3. Where does God dwell? David tells us. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted, and he saves those who are crushed in spirit. Close to the brokenhearted. Psalm 34, 18. What hope do we have that God's glory will come again as in the former days? Jesus said to this, to his people, I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first law. Repent. Do the things you did at first. Revelation 2, verse 1. Again, here I am. I stand at the door and I knock. And if anyone hears my voice, Open the door. I will come in. Revelation 3, verse 2. David put it this way. Who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? He answers his own question. He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to an idol or swear by what is false. He will receive blessing from the Lord, vindication from God, his Savior. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, O God of Jacob. Psalm 24, verse 3 through 6. So by all means, we should be men and women praying for revival. But what shall we pray for? Shall we pray that our Neighbors will stop opposing us as Christians and uh, just leave us alone. That's never going to happen so long as you are living for God. Your life and mine is an indictment on the world's selfishness and greed and idolatry. Or is it? I mean, if we treat God like the world treats Him, like a fetish, a good luck charm to ward off bad things from happening to us, then we come across every bit as pagan in our concept as they. So forget about praying that the world will accept you and leave you alone. The only way that will happen is if you become one with them. Oh, and that's dangerous. What about praying for our fellow church members? Maybe there's an Achan living among us. And God is chastening the church to spank the offender. When Joshua inquired of God as to why Israel had been defeated by the little teeny town of Ai, he laid in the dust on the ground, and he whined, Ah, Sovereign Lord, why did you ever bring this people across the Jordan 
to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us. If only we had been content to stay on the other side of the Jordan. Oh Lord, what can I say now that Israel has been routed by its enemies? The Canaanites and the other people of the community will hear about this and they will surround us and wipe out our name from the earth. What then will you do for our for your great name. Joshua 7, verses 7 and following. Well, God listened to about as much of this blame shifting as he could endure, and then he interrupted Joshua saying, Stand up! What are you doing down on your face? Israel has sinned. They have violated my covenant, which I commanded them to keep. They have taken some of the devoted things. Those things were devoted to God. They have stolen. They have lied. They have put them with their possessions. That is why the Israelites cannot stand against their enemies. They turn their backs and run because they have been made liable to destruction. Go, consecrate the people. Tell them, consecrate yourself in preparation for tomorrow. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, that which is devoted is among you. Devoted to him. So he's saying, somebody in your camp took things that were devoted to me and put them in their own possessions. That which is devoted is among you. O Israel, you cannot stand against your enemies until you remove it. Joshua 7, 10 and 5. Notice, brethren, whom God blamed for his refusal to help. Israel has sinned. Now listen. They have violated my covenant. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen. They have lied. They have put them in their own possessions. That is why the Israelites cannot stand against their enemies. And we're prone to say, oh, you know, it was Achan who did it. He. But God comes to us and he says, no, it was you. It was you. It is the people collectively that needs to be consecrated to God. We used to sing a little chorus as children in Sunday school. And it went like this. It's me, it's me, it's me, O Lord, standing in the need of prayer. Not my brother, not my sister. No, it's me, O Lord, standing in the need of prayer. It doesn't seem quite fair to us that God would chasten a whole church for the sin of one person 
But that's because we do not grasp the truth that in the church we are not many, but one family. One family. Paul put it this way, God has combined the members of the body and has given great honor to the parts that lacked it so that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one suffers, every part suffers with it. If one is honored, every part rejoices with it. Now you who are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. 1 Corinthians 12, 24. If one, every. If one, every. The place to begin as we seek for a return of God's glory is with our own sinful selves. Do not blame the church. Do not blame the pastor. Do not blame your parents. Do not blame your teachers for the spiritual bankruptcy in your life. If you sense that God is not close to you anymore, guess who moved? Isaiah put it this way. Speaking to the people of Israel. Your iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. Isaiah 59 verse 2. Jesus put it this way, and when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive him so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. Mark eleven twenty. How wonderful the Savior who forgives us as we forgive others. What I'm saying is we're all in this together. God deals with us as family but outsiders are cast out into outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth to what group do you belong Israel was God's people when they sinned he spanked them he chased them it was pretty harsh at times but it was for their spiritual good. And God says it's the same to us. He spanks us so that in the end we won't perish. My dad used to say this to me all the time when I was getting my spanking. Son, you won't believe it right now, but Later in life, you're going to thank me that I don't let you go away with the things you do that are wrong. And then he thanked me. 
year old dad lived to be a hundred. Literally. And I do thank him for all the spankings. For all the corrections. You know, you're running down this path. It's not good. You need to come back to square one. Get your life realigned with Christ. With the gospel. To what group do you belong? You know, if God lets you alone, there's no hope. But if He chides you, if He spanks you, if He gives you a rough time, if He makes you feel uncomfortable, those are all good signs. You should thank Him for that. He doesn't have to do anything to the people of the world. They can just let them go be whatever they want to be. And they'll perish in hell for all of eternity. But if he loves us, he won't let us go our own way. He won't let us perish. He will spank us and discipline us and correct us. Eli never did that with his sons. Lord, we thank you for the truth of your word and we praise you for it. This is hard stuff to chew into sometimes. We pray that we are not a church where your glory has departed from us. But we do know that at times we are such in the terms of our behavior and our indolence that we are disobedient to you and you discipline for us for that. That's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. And we herein thank you for that. We want to be a godly church where people know the Lord or can come to know the Lord through the preaching of the word, but through also the witness of our lives, the testimony we have in the community, our understanding of the gospel as found in the scriptures so that we can relate it to others, and on and on it goes. Make us good students of your word. Make us good examples of what it means to live the Christian life. May the return of God's glory be our portion today in Christ's name. Amen. Our closing hymn is 527 in the hymnal.
glory does belong to his name. He's the Savior, not us. Well, we have a number of sick among us, so please keep those people in your prayers. And uh, we'll see you Wednesday night. Not tonight. Any other questions? Or? Yeah. What? So Dale, you want to lead him, lead us in prayer for Ken? Smith. Thank you.